go ahead and grab your Bibles and let's turn to Romans chapter 12. Uh, We have several things that we want to cover today as we walk through this text. Uh, As I mentioned to you last week, Romans 12 marks a significant shift in the the writing of uh, this letter because the first 11 chapters, Paul Paul took a thorough explanation and overview of the mercy of God, Uh, went into great detail to explain the mercy of God, and then he gets to chapter 12 and he begins an emphasis on what our response to that mercy needs to be. Right? Therefore, in view of God's mercy is how he begins this chapter. And chapters 12 through 16 really begin to take all these major theological implications of the first 11 chapters and refocus them into practical daily living. And this is why this becomes such a great point of emphasis for us throughout the course of the summer and really the course of the year. Because we've been talking about as a church, what does it mean to live courageously? What does the courageous life look like? And chapters 12 through 16 begin to emphasize the practicality of that life. How do you take these things and put them into practice? And that's the journey that we are now beginning as we get to Romans chapter 12. Last week, we reintroduced this concept by looking at the first two verses. And as I mentioned to you last week, uh, that marks the fourth time I've, I've had a chance to preach on those two verses since I've been here. So we've covered a, from a variety of different angles. But last week in particular, the point of emphasis was that when we get to this moment, what really has changed from chapter 1 to chapter 12 is that in chapter 1, when we're dealing with the midst of the human dilemma, the brokenness, the problem of sin, the manifestation of that sin is that we put God to the test and, and we ultimately deem him unworthy. Right? The way it's, it's phrased in chapter 1, verse 28, is that we did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. We put him to the test and he was unworthy. And then this drastic shift in chapter 12 that says, but now, with this renewed mind... With this transformed heart, we now put him to the test and we see that his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. He is worthy of it all. And the way that that transformation takes place is that once you see God's mercy, you make yourself available, right? You you offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And that's what we looked at last week. And so today, we're going to begin to see how that offering, that, that sacrifice, that giving of yourself translates into the courageous life. Okay, and that's what we're going to be picking up on today. So let's follow along in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. It says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, Form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. All right, so Romans 12, 3 through 8, picks up on this idea and takes all these theological implications of the first 11 chapters and begins to break them down in more practical living. Now, what's interesting about verses 3 through 8 is that after Paul has said, okay, here's your response to the mercy of God. You you offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You, You understand his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The first thing that he tries to emphasize is how this mercy of God changes your relationships with one another. And that is not insignificant. And it also really shouldn't be surprising, should it? 
Because when you think about the greatest commandment, Jesus has asked this question in the Gospels. What what is the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing for me to do? Jesus' response is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And without hesitation, he adds to it. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? The, the, The way in which we demonstrate Our love for God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength is the way in which we love one another. The mercy of God doesn't just transform our relationship with him. It transforms our relationship with one another. And so that's the natural point of emphasis that Paul now turns. And it it also follows a a natural progression with this point in the letter. Because if you go back to chapters 6 through 8, that's more focused on the individual. Right? Chapters 6 through 8... Make, make the idea of how you personally respond more applicable, right? That you are to be dead to sin and alive to Christ, that you're going to war between flesh and spirit, but you should live by the spirit. And so that's your personal response. Then you get to chapters 9 and 11. And what Paul does in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is he really does kind of attack and dismantle their understanding of their corporate identity, right? That, that they had understood themselves as a people, especially as the Jews, to find their identity, their relationships with one another built upon heritage, race, ethnicity, ritual purity, right? Or or if you were not a part of the Jews, then you found your identity in Hellenism or Greek uh, religion or affluence or philosophy or all these different things. And so he's dismantled all of that and he said, this is not how you relate to one another anymore, right? The, The mercy of God transforms not just your relationship with God, but your relationship to one another. And so here's the main emphasis for us this morning. The courageous life is not really about what you can do for yourself. It's about what you can do for others. Can I say that again? All right. Living courageously is not about what you can do for yourself. But it is an understanding the mercy of God, how you give your life. For others. That's where true courage is found. And that's what Paul is about to begin his discussion on here in 3 through 8. And so he begins with a very important word towards humility. Right? He says, by the grace given to me, none of you, each of you, right? None of you should think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather in sober judgment. The theme for these verses, verses 3 through 8, is absolutely a focus on Humility, And that is the posture with which we need to approach our relationships with others. And when you think about uh, this moment uh, where you think of yourself more highly than your ought, uh, I think many of us can probably relate to this, that at some point or another we found ourselves in a situation where we thought of ourselves a little bit more highly than we should have, and all of a sudden that dose of humility comes our way, right? We had a certain swagger, had a certain belief, a certain confidence only to find it humbled, right? You could be that athlete that thought you were the star, and then the next thing you know, you cost your team the game. Or you were the star student, and you thought you couldn't make any sort of mistakes, and all of a sudden you fail a test. Or I don't know, let's say you thought you were really good at potato sack races, right? And you felt like you had it in the bag, so to speak. And all of a sudden you were so confident, you thought you could just hop your way backwards to victory, when all of a sudden, boom, you fall. Just complete hypothetical situation, right? You have those moments where you think of yourself a little bit more highly than you ought, and then all of a sudden, humility, right? And what that does is it creates sober judgment. 
And that is an incredibly important concept. It is an incredibly important concept for us to understand in our relationship to God and with others. Because here's the deal. The opposite of humility is pride. Pride leads you away from God, not to him. And pride leads you away from others, not to them. Right? Pride leaves you in isolation. So we need to let this one sit in for a moment, okay? I wanted to make sure that we understand how this needs to be combated. How do we combat pride so that we can lean into this spirit of humility that Paul is, is striving for here? Uh, here's what I would say. Here's the challenge of pride, first on a human level and then just on a societal level, okay? The, the nature of sin, I, I really believe the heart of all sin begins with pride. And the reason I argue that is because when you go back to the garden, right, when you go back to see how it all began and how sin entered itself into the world, the temptation was you won't die, you'll be like God. That is an elevation of self, right? That is an elevation that says I don't need authority, I don't need anything else in my life. But in particular, the act of sin in the garden was to partake of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, and we've talked about this before, that when you see the word knowledge in the scriptures, especially from a Hebraic background, that idea of knowledge was not just intellect, right? It's not just what do I know, what can I comprehend, but it was an idea of experience. And so when you see man and woman, when you see Adam and Eve, eat of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, part of what they're saying is that I want to experience good and evil for myself. I don't need God to tell me what is right and wrong. I get to determine that. And that is the heart of almost every sin, is it not? Like, put yourself in the situation. This is how the voice of sin works itself into our hearts and our minds. You're in a situation where all of a sudden you have the opportunity to gossip. And that voice creeps in and says, it's okay if I say this right here. Right? This isn't that wrong because I'm with friends or I can do these different things or this is something that really should be shared. And you rationalize it. You determine right and wrong for yourself in that moment. Greed, right? You, you find yourself in a situation where you have the opportunity towards affluence or money or whatever it is, and you begin to have this voice that creeps up and says, why it's okay if I have this much or do this much or steward it this way? And you rationalize it. I mean, the, the scenarios are endless. We put ourselves in situations where we get to determine for ourselves, what is right, what is wrong, that is pride. That is sin. It leads you away from God. It leads you away from others. Right? And so, so we have to combat that. Now, what makes it particularly difficult in our context as a society is, is that there is a narrative in our society in particular that I think, uh, if, if it runs unchecked, can lead us down a very dangerous ditch uh, towards pride as well. Um, let me press into this for a moment because I want us to see how this happens because it happens so readily nowadays. And, it, and it's, it's unfortunate because it really begins from a good place, but it begins with things that we are taught from a very early age, especially in this country, which is that we have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Correct? Now, let me be very clear. I think those are great ideals. And I think they're great for a nation to build themselves upon those ideals. Right? But when it is unchecked, what it turns into is a mindset and a mentality that says, this is my life. I have the freedom to live how I want to do whatever makes me happy. And if you infringe upon my life or infringe upon my rights or infringe upon my happiness, then we are at war. 
and that's pride. So I want to I wanna press into that for a moment, okay? And here's how I want to do it. Uh, what I want us to see is that though those ideals are good in many ways, what I want to challenge is the idea that you have a right to them. Okay, let, let's, let's press into this for a moment. The right to life. Now, life is good, correct? I mean, and it is precious, it's sacred, it should be fought for, it should be defended, right? It should be protected, and I, I firmly believe all those things. But why do we think we have a right? Here's what I mean by that. Did you choose your life? Like, what did you do to create your existence? Nothing. Right, like none of us chose when to be born, what hair color, what eye color, like none of us had a say in our own existence. Not a single one of us, even your parents. Right, like they didn't choose how tall you would be, what hair color you would have, the personality. Like what makes us think that this is something we created and we have a right to? You had nothing to do with your existence. What the Bible teaches is that you were fearfully and wonderfully made by God. That's what the scriptures teach. And after you, after you dig a little bit further into the scriptures, here's what it actually teaches us even more, is that because we live in sinful and broken realities, that the wages for that sin is what? Death. You want to know what you're owed? You want to know what we deserve? It's not life, it's death. But as Romans 6.23 continues, what does it tell us? That the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what that does is reorients our understanding that what we really need to live for is not this earthly existence, but an eternal one. And that eternal life is nothing that we have a right to. It is a free gift. Right? We, we don't have a right to any of it. Your life was a gift. Liberty, the right to liberty. Again, liberty is a great thing that I believe, again, should be fought for, defended, protected, celebrated, right? I really do. But here's what we all know, church. What we all know is that when you scan across this world and through the course of human history, there are people all over the world that are born into freedom and liberty and those that are born into oppression. And the gospel is meant for both. See, what God knows is that this gospel is going to find the slave and the free. And so it needs to exist and flourish whether you have liberty or you don't. And what that means then is that when you pour through the scriptures, it doesn't say you have the right to liberty, go fight for it. It says obey your master as if serving Christ. It says submit to the governing authorities. That's what the scriptures teach. Why? Because what the scriptures teach and what the gospel proclaims is that this true freedom that you're seeking is not a liberty in this life. It's liberty from sin and death. And the only way that is achieved is through Jesus. And that too is a gift. The pursuit of happiness. Can we all acknowledge that we are really terrible at figuring out what makes us happy? Right? Proverbs tell us there's a way that seems right to mankind and in the end it leads to death. Right? We seek happiness in all the wrong places with all the wrong things. 
And so what makes us think we have a right to it? See, what the gospel teaches is that happiness is fleeting. What you're really after is joy. Joy that can endure in all circumstances. Joy that is not dependent upon your earthly reality. That true joy comes not through achieving certain happiness for yourself, but actually giving yourself away to others. That true joy comes through servanthood, through self-denial, through suffering by taking up your cross and following Christ. It's a gift. See, we have to work hard to deconstruct the human impulses and the things that we see in society that say, this is my life, this is my right, I'm entitled to all my happiness. What we really need to do is see that life is a gift and it has been given to you to give to others and to give to God. That's thinking of ourselves with sober judgment. And so Paul emphasizes this spirit of humility, and he says this is to be in accordance with the faith that is given to you, the faith that has been measured to you or distributed to you. Now, what what I think that phrase means and how I think this keeps us anchored in humility is that what faith teaches us in view of the mercy of God is, again, that all of this is by his mercy, that there is no one righteous No, not one. No one who gets to stand before God and claim his grace, claim certain privileges, claim certain blessings. It is only through faith in his mercy. And so by being tethered to that faith, maintaining that faith, that anchors us in his mercy and anchors us with this understanding of humility. Right? And so we we are to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but rather in sober judgment according to the faith that God has given to us. And that's how Paul begins his discussion here. Now, from there, he transitions into what is one of his his favorite uh, illustrations to demonstrate how this influences our relationships with one another, which is the image of the body. And we see this uh, take place in other passages of Scripture, like 1 Corinthians in particular, where he begins to describe how the body relates to one another. And as you read through that brief description here in Romans, you can extract three primary points as to why this image is very powerful. Because the body promotes unity, uh, it promotes and accentuates diversity, and it also promotes dependability. Right, so just to quickly cover that, uh, you, when you are a part of a body, your body does not war with itself. As, as it's referenced in 1 Corinthians, the hand doesn't say to the foot, I don't need you. Right, division within the body makes zero sense. The body supports one another, lives for one another. There is a unity because it belongs to the same thing. And so what what Paul is doing is to say, you all now have a new unity, not through your Jewish heritage, not through your affluence or your Hellenism or philosophers of the day, not through your ritual purity. Your unity comes through Jesus Christ to the extent that you now refer to one another as brothers and sisters. You are of one body. And we need to never lose sight of that. That as brothers and sisters, across denominations, across cultures, we are called to a unity in Jesus. And we need to fight for that unity to the best of our ability. And yet, though there is this unity, there's also this diversification. Right now, there's an obvious diversity that you can see through the expression of the body of Christ uh, that often comes through external appearances, right? There's going to be a diversity in uh, race. There's going to be a diversity in culture, diversity in age and gender and all these different things, external uh, obvious evidences of diversity. And that's a beautiful demonstration of the body of Christ. But, but what Paul's emphasizing here is not so much a diversification based on external appearances, but a diversification in function, 
which is really cool, because where Paul's leading us is the idea and the discussion of gifts, which we're going to get to here in just a moment, right? But what his point is, is that the body has a lot of different parts, each with its own function. And so part of what we need to see is that our relationships with one another are shaped by the idea of understanding that not all of us play the same role within the body of Christ. Each of us have a different function, just in the same way that the hand cannot just do everything on its own, right? The, the body is made up of many parts. Though we say it uh, in certain contexts, you are not all ears, right? That would look really weird. We have a diversification of parts, two hands, two feet, two eyes, two nose. That's what happens when you just get going too quickly. One nose, right? Diversification of parts. So the function uh, is different. And understanding what function you have and play within the body of Christ is something that Paul's about to elaborate on. So you have a diversification. You also have dependability. And that is built upon this diversification. The reason the hand doesn't say to the foot that I don't need you, why? Because the hand needs the foot. And the foot needs the hand. Each dependent upon the other. And, and that is such a truth that we need to lean into within the church as well, that, that all of us depend upon one another. And you see this in every capacity, in every way, that, that the body depends on one another. You know what's really cool is like when the body, the physical body, um, has like an injury or a deformity or, or something along the lines and the way in which the body compensates for it, right? You break your arm and the way the, the rest of your body gets stronger or compensates for that weakness, or let's say you're born blind or deaf and the way the rest of the body elevates itself to compensate for those deficiencies or the, those things that might be lacking, the body consistently rallies around itself so that it can depend upon one another, Right? And so there's this dependability. So Paul says, just as there's many functions, you belong to each other. So when you participate in the body of Christ, it's an understanding that you are depending upon your brothers and sisters, and your brothers and sisters are depending upon you to play your part, which is what Paul leads us to, that there are many functions for we all have gifts. Now this is where it gets really cool. All right, the word for gifts here. Uh, is, is uh, really neat when you see the definition for it because the way it's defined is that it's any word or act that helps reveal the grace of God. Can I say that again? It's any word or act that helps reveal the grace of God. It is not about a title. It is not about a particular position. It means that God has gifted you with words and or acts that help reveal his grace. And there's, there's something that I want to emphasize on this subject uh, before we start talking about the specific ones that are referenced here today, is the emphasis within this paragraph where Paul says, each of you. Right, he actually begins in verse three by saying, I say to every one of you. So he, he is speaking to everyone, to each of them, and he's saying everyone has a gift. So I want to take a moment and speak to anyone in this room today who has somehow convinced themselves or have heard other people say, you don't have a gift to contribute to the body of Christ. That is not according to scripture. Every single one of you has a gift. And God has gifted you with certain words or acts that help you reveal 
the grace of God. And it is not for any other purpose but to point to his grace. And so if there's any part of you in your life, your experience, or anything that has convinced you that you have nothing to contribute, hear me say, absolutely you do. God has gifted each and every one of you. Bring those gifts to the body of Christ. Bring those gifts to others. Now, here's the challenge that I think we face, again, in our context, is that what happens is that we tend to focus on certain gifts that we elevate with importance. And because we elevate them with importance with how we do church, all of a sudden we kind of gradually diminish the importance of other gifts. And the net, or kind of the impact and the result of that is that certain people think that they don't really need to participate, don't have to participate, or don't have a gift to contribute. And so this is pretty obvious. Like in today's church experience, more often than not, we elevate the gift of teaching and preaching and singing. That kind of seems to be the central focus of church congregations and gatherings today. And, and there's, there's a value to those gifts, but it's really unfortunate when those gifts are elevated to the point that that's the whole way in which we gather And it begins to communicate that if you can't preach or you can't teach or you can't sing, then you really have nothing to contribute. And the implications of that sort of mentality are kind of multifaceted. On on one hand, what that does is it creates a church environment that depends upon the few. And that's not what God designed. Now, I'm not talking about governance structure, okay, because there's always going to be a governance structure, even in Scripture, that's going to vest certain authority decision-making with uh, overseers, elders, deacons, whatever it is, in our church committees and all those other things. But what I'm talking about is just the, the contribution of gifts and functioning and relationships to one another. Right? What, what you often hear in the world of church is the 80-20 rule. You guys heard of that one before? That 20% of the congregation does 80% of the work. Uh, and I'll just tell you, in, in a lot of my experiences, not just here, I think our church actually does a better job of it, but in many other churches, And in other organizations, that's not far off. But what this passage teaches is that that should never be the case because everyone has a gift, right? Like we we should never be dependent upon the few, right? That, That really what we should be striving for is the ways in which all of us gather together and depend upon one another and contribute to it. The other problem when we depend upon the few or we begin to convince ourselves that only certain gifts are worth expressing in church or I don't have a gift to offer in church is that it turns us into consumers rather than contributors, right? And that's, that's a common experience in church world now, right? So we, we build these churches, we build these expressions of Sunday morning built upon these kind of personalities that you're going to see on a stage or a platform. And we start going to churches really with that consuming mentality because, again, culture has taught us that that's really what you're supposed to do in life is consume, consume, and consume. So we come in and say, well, I didn't really like the preacher. I didn't think he was funny enough. didn't think he was smart enough. didn't think he was in the Word enough. I didn't really like the singing. I didn't really like this. And we just evaluate it based on what do we get. The courageous life is not about what do you get, but what do you offer to others? How different would our churches look if people would go and visit churches with the lens of how do I contribute what God has gifted me to contribute here? How different would our experience be? Every 
single one of you is gifted. So here's what that takes. What that takes is the right mindset, right? It starts with humility, right? That I'm not walking in being like, y'all, just get ready for all my giftings. Let me blow you away with all of my talents. But you come in with this, this humility. What can I do to offer to others? Because the needs of the church are great. The needs of God's people are great. And he's gonna, he's gonna use me to speak words or offer acts that reveal his grace. You have to have that right mindset of humility. You gotta be present, right? Like, like you don't wanna be a part of a community of faith um, where people are depending upon you, but they can't depend upon you because you're not there. Now, we talk about this lesson with my kids all the time, be it at school or activities or events, whatever it is, like you, you've gotta be there. And that's gonna shape you and that's gonna allow um, not just you to be shaped, but for you to shape them. You gotta know what your gift is. And you gotta see that you're not just adding church to your calendar, you're not just adding church as an activity or something in your schedule. Like it, it, is, it is a family that you're participating in. Right? It, it is God's chosen instrument to reveal his grace to the world. And so if, if we can break out of that mindset of like, well, this is something I've got to schedule, this is something I've got to, to orchestrate, but actually see it, that God has equipped you, gifted you, using you in many ways to reveal this grace, then we get to participate in something incredible. Right? So, so all of this helps us break out of that sort of limited mindset, that consumeristic mindset to see that every single person has a function. Which leads you to the question, What's yours? What's mine? What's ours? Right? How do I discern what the Spirit of God has gifted me to do? Well, you get a list here in Romans 12. Now, let me say a few things about this list. Uh, the list is not exhaustive. Okay? This is uh, an example. Uh, you, you can consult other passages of Scripture like Ephesians and 1 Corinthians that are going to have other gifts referenced. And so I don't want you to read Romans 12 and be like, well, I don't know which one of those applies to me because there are more, right? Here's how I want you to read this list, and this is why we're not gonna break them down one by one, uh, is when you look at this list, there's really two categories that uh, reiterate the definition of gift. Uh, there, it's either a word or an act that reveals the grace of God. So prophecy, teaching, encouragement, those are words that are spoken to reveal the grace of God. Serving, leading, giving, showing mercy, right? These are all acts that reveal the grace of God. So as you seek to discern, well, what has God gifted me to do? Think through what words can I say, not necessarily from a stage or from a pulpit, but what words can I offer that reveal the grace of God? What, what acts can I offer that reveal the grace of God, right? And understanding, again, that to live courageously is that you pursue these things, that it's not so that you can gain something for yourself, but what you can offer to others, that that's what the courageous life looks like. Here's the, here's the scripture that I think says this really well and complements Romans 12 uh, very well. I want you to look at, well, you don't have to turn there, but we have it on the screen. It's 1 Peter chapter 4, and it, and it puts this in great perspective. I actually only have verses 10 through 11 on the screen, but I'm gonna reference a few things in the verses preceding it. Uh, here in 1 Peter, it says the end of all things is near, and, and so that gives you a certain perspective, a certain understanding of how to approach life. In fact, he says, therefore be alert and of sober mind. 
which is something that Paul's already conveyed. Sober mind. So that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply. He's talking about his relationships with one another because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So this is all about your relationships with one another. And then in verse 10, here's what it says. Each of you, each of you, right? Not just a few of you. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So what God has gifted you to do is to serve others, to reveal his grace, not to the praise of your name, but to the praise of our God and Father in heaven. So this is what Paul is teaching. Here's how I'm going to bring it to a close. I told you last week that I wanted to elaborate a little bit on my own just personal testimony of how Romans 12, 1 through 8, really just kind of broke me. Um, I I mentioned last week when we were talking about uh, all the different ways that we we don't necessarily make ourselves available, uh, that we still kind of try to keep things for ourselves, and that that was true of me. And I'd even wrapped it up in kind of spiritual language by saying, well, I want to be a missionary but I took that dream of being a missionary and I added all these different stipulations and qualifications, right? Y'all remember that? I want to be a missionary to unreached peoples, but I want to be married and I only want to go for this long. I want to go with these people. Like, I hadn't really made myself available. And here's how this passage broke me of that. When, when I say that Jennifer and I had explored going overseas, that wasn't something that we thought about for a couple of months. Like, that was something I had really felt like God had laid on my heart when I was 16 years old. And I had had pursued that dream and that vision for 17 years. Through the seminary I went to, through the the, uh, undergraduate school I went to, like, all of it. And we got to this place where we were like, okay, let's let's go. Let's figure this out. And, And that season was probably two and a half years, I would guess. So it wasn't just, hey, let's think about it for a couple of months, let's look online. Like we tried um, extensively through numerous conversations with church leadership, with friends, with community, with different missions organizations, all these different things. And through the course of two and a half years, doors were closed over and over and over again. And not just like bumps in the road where like, oh, it's not gonna work out, like things that we, we tried really hard to overcome and just couldn't. And in that season of at least two and a half years, we're, we're also filled with constant prayer and a lot of fasting, too, so, to where it was truly trying to seek the Lord and understanding how all of this was, was unfolding. And we, we went to, uh, or we arrived at a place where I could tell, like, this wasn't happening, and I could sense it. And I'll never forget this day. Um, I was sitting there at home. I was by myself. I don't remember where Jennifer and the kids were on that particular night, but I was by myself, I'd been fasting that day, praying that day, really seeking the Lord that day. And I remember getting down on my knees right there at the front of my couch and praying, and I opened up to Romans 12, which is a natural place to turn when you're in kind of this what are you doing, Lord, sort of moment, because Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about God's will for your life. And, and I started reading it again, and I was like, see, this is what I want. I want to offer myself as a living sacrifice. I want to be a missionary. Why, why can't I do that? That's what I'm trying to do. 
I don't want to be like the rest of the world. I want to conform to the patterns of this world. I want to live this transformed life and show that transformation. So what's happening, God? What is your, what is your will? I know it's good. I know it's pleasing. I know it's perfect. But what is it? And then I kept reading. And I read the words, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but in sober judgment. And for the first time, I really had to kind of acknowledge before the Lord that maybe my dream of, of doing missions was thinking of myself more highly than I ought. Right, that if I were honest, part of that dream, if not a good chunk of that dream, was not really about what I could do for others, but what I could do for myself. Right, that in some ways I was gonna be able to craft this like spiritual resume that I could hang on the wall, see, see what I did? I went overseas. I lived in a different culture, right? And there was, a, there was a pride behind it. So I had to not think of myself more highly than I ought, but rather in sober judgment. And then I had to depend upon the body to know really what was my function. What was interesting to me, and I didn't really fully acknowledge it until this kind of breaking point, but what was interesting was that here I was in ministry at that point, I had had this passion for missions since I was 16. I had gone to seminary and had a theological degree with a concentration in intercultural studies. I was a missions pastor. I traveled the world. I had been all these different places. And I was telling people I want to be a missionary. And you know what the church kept saying back to me? They would say, Jeremiah, when are you going to be a pastor? And I would, every time I'd say, I'm not, because I saw that as a distraction. But in this breaking point, all of a sudden, the words of the body that I had to depend upon began to bring certain truth into my life. And I began to open myself up to it. And then I began to read the list of all these different gifts in Romans 12. And here's what I began to realize. Is I said in my prayer, I said, Lord, the last thing I want to do is spend my life on my knees saying, God, make me a foot, make me a foot, and have you constantly go. But Jeremiah, you're not a foot. It's not what I made you to do, your hand. And it was in that moment, really for the first time in my walk with Christ, that I truly laid my dreams on the altar and I made myself available. And I said, whatever you want. And I offered myself. In church, it changed me. And I'm not sharing that because it like, changed my trajectory of a career, like it changed me. Changed my relationship with God, changed my understanding of faith, changed my understanding of how to connect with others, changed my understanding of how to rely and depend upon him. And it's in those moments where we truly make ourselves available that God begins to reveal, here's your place, here's your function, here's where I want you, and I, I assure you, church, it is the change worth living for. It's where you find a new sense of fulfillment, a new sense of purpose, not because of what you may do, but because of who it makes you be in the presence of God and hopefully in the presence of others. So I desire that for each and every one of us, that we would come before him with that sort of humility, that sort of view of his mercy, 
recognizing that the courage we seek to embody is not about what we get for ourselves, but what we can offer to others. What happens when a whole church does that day after day after day? I I don't know that I can paint a picture of it or describe it, but what I'm pretty confident in church is that it's in those moments that God's power is truly unleashed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we are grateful, beyond grateful for who you are. God, help us to come before your throne with a continued spirit of humility that we would, that we would never think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but rather in sober judgment. God, let every single heart and soul in here realize and recognize that you have gifted them with a word or an act that will reveal your grace to others. So may we treasure these moments. May we treasure this community for all of its faults, for all of its failings, for all of its deficiencies, and yet may we love one another deeply because we know love covers over a multitude of sins. Let us serve one another, that it would bring you the praise that you so richly deserve. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.